Well, let me just say to you as we get started this morning that it's apparent that God wants to speak to you in some way this morning because the enemy wants to try to distract you, okay? And so we've got some screens that are not working like they should be and they randomly came on and we're afraid to cut them off based upon what else may go off. And so don't try to figure out the picture or anything like that. Ignore it or you're going to miss what God wants to do in your life, okay? And so let's just try to block out any distraction that may come up and let's listen to what God wants to do in our life. I want you to turn with me this morning to the book of Judges chapter 6. Now I got to tell you, before we get started, I love underdog stories. I just love underdog stories. That may be why I love the Rocky movies so much, especially Rocky 1 through 4, not so much 5 and 6. I love watching Rocky Balboa fight and and ultimately defeat Apollo Creed, Clubber Lane, and and ultimately that Russian steroid machine, Ivan Draco. After Rocky chapter 1, I started drinking Eggs and in milk, trying to get bulked up. After Rocky II, I I developed the eye of the tiger. And after Rocky III, I discovered that no matter how many eggs I drank in milk, and no matter how hard I tried to develop the eye of the tiger, I just wasn't going to look like Rocky Balboa. I love underdog stories, but the truth is. Underdog stories don't just occur in the movies, they occur in real life. And, and we see those underdog stories in history, and we see those underdog stories certainly in, in sports. I, I think about Appalachian State defeating Michigan. I, I, I think about Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson. I think about Rulon Gardner defeating that, that Russian bear, Alexander Carolyn. He hadn't lost a match in 13 years. He had never lost an international bout, and yet he was defeated. Perhaps the, the greatest underdog story of all is the 1980 miracle on ice. When, when those college kids on the United States hockey team defeated the Soviet team, a, a team that had won the gold medal eight of the last nine Olympics, a a, a team that had crushed the American team just days before the Olympics. And yet, these upstart college kids band together and defeated this powerful Russian, this powerful Soviet team. I love underdog stories. I think that's why I like the story we're about to look at so much because it shows us that God can use someone. God can use anyone who is willing to put their trust in him and do what he says. The Bible is filled with underdog stories and the book of Judges is filled with underdog stories. We see Othniel who was way past his prime used of God. We see Ehud, who was, who was disabled, who was handicapped, who was used. We see Shemgar, all he had was an ox goad. We see Deborah, she was simply a wife and a mother. 
And yet God used each of them to deliver his people. But today's story is perhaps the most amazing of all. But as we get started this morning, I want you to see that that just as we see throughout this book, the people of God needed a hero because the people of God had rejected God. I want you to look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I want us to read this. Listen to what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years... He gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples would invade the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. And they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They, they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Now here are the Israelites. The people that God has chosen to be his very own people, the people that he has chosen to share his glory with all the people of the earth, and yet they have rebelled again. We see their rebellion over and over and over again in this book. God would deliver them, and then they would turn back to their evil. And listen, one of the things that we see in Scripture time and time again, is that there is a consequence for our sin and our rebellion. Never think that you are going to sin against Almighty God and get away with it. There is always a consequence for sin and rebellion. This time, the Bible says that God sent the Midianites, a people who who were so cruel, they were so oppressive that that the Israelites retreated to the mountains. And they were living in mountain clefts. They were living in caves. They, they had built strongholds. And they were holed up in these strongholds. And every year, for seven years, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and, and other eastern tribes would come. And they would invade the land. The Bible says, like swarms of locusts. And they would take all of their crops. They would, they would take all of their livestock. They would leave nothing behind for the Israelites. And the Israelites were so impoverished. They were so broken economically that, that they finally cried out to God. But understand, they weren't crying out in repentance because of their sin. They weren't crying out in penance 
toward God. They were simply crying out because of the pain that they were in. Notice what it says here. They cried out to the Lord because of Midian. They didn't cry out because of their sin. They didn't cry out because of their rebellion. They didn't cry out in repentance. They cried out because of their pain and their suffering. And it's amazing how we do that, isn't it? We see that time and time again in in America. Do you remember 9-11? I remember it as as if it were yesterday. And what is amazing to me about about 9-11 is how people who had no time for God, who had no desire for God, all of a sudden were calling out to God, pray for America. We weren't praying a prayer of repentance. We were praying because we were in pain. Now, I know this wound is still open, but, but the same thing's true with this flood. This flood occurred, and God forbid it was a horrific thing, but, but it's amazing to me how many people, people who, who from their lives at least seem to have no time for God, now are asking everybody to pray for the Midlands. Pray for South Carolina. It seems like at least we want God to to take away our hurt. We want God to solve our problems. We want God to remove our pain. And yet all the time we want God to stay out of our lives. We want to stay in our rebellion. Tim Keller said it this way. He said regret is about us. How I'm being hurt. How My life is ruined. How my heart is breaking. But repentance is all about God. How he is being grieved. How his nature as creator and redeemer is being trampled on. How his repeated saving actions are being trivialized and used manipulatively. But but I want you to notice what God did. This is important. When they cried out to God, God didn't elitionally send a deliverer. God initially sent a prophet. The reason is because even though they were in economic distress, that was not their problem. Even though they were being oppressed by a foreign power, that was not their problem. You see, those things were symptoms of their problem. God wanted to reveal that they had a spiritual problem. They had sinned against God, and so God sent a prophet. They thought that Midian was the prophet, or Midian was the problem, but in reality, God God says that they were the problem. Notice what the prophet said. God brought you out of Egypt. God fleed you from slavery. God drove out your oppressors. God gave you their land. And all God said is, worship me. Don't worship their gods. And then the prophet said this. But you have not listened. (laughs) Did you get that? God did all of this for you. He blessed you in these ways. And he asked one thing. You worship him. You don't worship these pagan gods. And yet you did not listen. But here's the amazing thing. And this is amazing. 
There's no record of their repentance. We, we don't see this. And yet God in his mercy still raises up a hero, a deliverer. God loves them even though they are not acting in love toward God. You see, this teaches us that, that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. But the deliverer God chooses and the method God uses is not what the world would expect. It's not what most of us would expect. Gideon is without a doubt an underdog and his army are underdogs. And yet God used them in such a way that Israel was not only delivered, but God received the glory. Now, as we look at this story, we discover three truths, three truths that I think apply to each of us. And, and, and the truth is that one of these truths is going to hit you right where you are today. I don't know which one, and it may be more than one, but I do want you to know that, that at least one of these truths is going to hit you where you are. Now, here's the first truth we see in, in this hero story. God doesn't focus on who you are, but who you can be. That's good news, isn't it? God doesn't focus on who you are. God focuses on who you can be. Listen to what it says in verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that, that belonged to Joash the Abazarite, where, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, when we first meet Gideon, we can't help but wonder, why does God choose this man? Gideon is not a Chuck Norris. Gideon is not a Rambo. As a matter of fact, he's not a man of strong faith or courage. As a matter of fact, the first time we see him, we see him threshing wheat in a wine, bread, wine press and his family is worshiping pagan gods. Now, in case you don't know, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. A wine press is in the ground. You thresh wheat on a high place so that when you throw the wheat up in the air, the wind will blow the chaff from the wheat, separating the two. But Gideon is so afraid of the Midianites, he is so intimidated by them that he is hiding out in a wine press, threshing his wheat. And God says to this man, who is frightened, who is intimidated, who is hiding, you are a mighty warrior. Now, now, I imagine Gideon looked at the angel speaking to him and said, Who? Me? I'm not a, a mighty warrior. I'm the, I'm the weakest member of the weakest family in my entire tribe. But praise God, God doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. He doesn't see us the way we are. He sees us the, the way we can be if we will simply trust him and follow him. There are some of you here today that, that are saying, God could never use me. 
You don't know my background. You don't know my past experience. I don't have the education. I don't have the credentials. There's a host of other reasons that, that God can't use me. But listen, God can use anyone who is willing to be used. As a matter of fact, over and over and over again in Scripture, we discover God taking the weak things of this world to confound the strong. Now, I want you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Hold your place in Judges 6, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to listen to what Paul said to this church in Corinth. A church that was was weak. A church that was filled with people who had, who had been involved in all types of, of heinous activity. All kinds of of immoral, vile sin. And some of them were still struggling with these sins. And this is what Paul said to them. He said, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, listen, it's not who you are that matters. It matters who God is. That's the only thing that matters. The key to God using you to accomplish great things is God with us And God in us. That's the only thing that matters. Your past doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your credentials don't matter. The only thing that matters is this. Is God with you? Is he living in you? We see that in verses 16 and 34. Notice what it says in verse 16. The Lord answered, I am will be with you. Gideon said, I'm not a mighty warrior. I'm the weakest man in the weakest family in my entire tribe. And God said, it doesn't matter. I will be with you. And then look at verse 34. It says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Literally, Gideon was clothed in the spirit of God. It's never about who you are. It's about what he can do in you and through you for his glory. It's not about where he finds you, but it's about where he takes you as you trust in his guidance. You would be amazed what God could do in you, God could do through you, if you would simply follow him and trust him. And by the way, listen, God doesn't want you to serve him. God wants you to surrender to him. And then he will empower you and he will do his work through you. It's not about you serving him. It's about you surrendering to him and allowing his power to flow through your life and use you in a powerful way. Now, trust me, it's easier to say that than it is to do that, isn't it? Would you agree? I mean, we can stand here and We can gather here as a family and we can say it's not about service, it's about surrender. And and if we will just simply allow God to come with us and 
live in us. He can do crazy, amazing things through us. We can say that, but, but it's difficult to really believe that. And Gideon struggled with that. And so Gideon, in effect, said, I'm not sure if I believe you. I'm not sure if I know you're from God. And so he said, let me go. Let me get an offering. Let me bring it back. And, and, and then we will see what happens. And so Gideon goes home. He cooks a goat. He cooks some bread. He brings it back. He lays it on a rock before the angel of the Lord. And all of a sudden, fire comes up from the rock, consumes the offering. Gideon realizes he's in the presence of God. And Gideon becomes frightened to the point of death. He thinks he's going to die. And the angel of the Lord says to him, God says to him, you're not going to die. I'm giving you peace. And the Bible says that there Gideon built an altar called Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my peace. Now listen for a second. Gideon was from a family that were worshiping pagan gods. Most commentators believe it was at this moment that Gideon was converted. It was at this moment that Gideon was saved. He, he came to the realization that, that the one he was standing before, the angel of the Lord, most people say that was a Christophany, that was Jesus standing before him. And he realized this is the one true God. And he realized who he was. He was a sinful, rebellious man. And he realized he deserved to die. And God said, I don't want you to die. I want to give you peace. And Gideon experienced that peace and he built an altar called the Lord is my peace. And there are some of you here today who are looking for peace. And you're looking for peace and in a, in a raise at your job. You're looking for peace and in a relationship that you feel like is, is the right one. And, and I'm here to tell you that we could, we could fill in the blanks with all kind of things that, that will tell you where that peace may come from in your mind. And you're never going to discover that peace. The Lord is your peace. He is the only one that can bring you peace and and Gideon discovered that peace that came from God. And, and hear me, any one of us can if we'll simply humble ourselves before him. Now notice what happened next. It's not enough to confess the Lord privately. That's what happened here. He was all alone. He built an altar. Jehovah, the Lord, is my peace. It's not enough to confess him privately. You, privately. You've got to go public. And so the Lord said, here's what you got to do. You got to go home. You've got to tear down that altar in your dad's backyard. The altar to Baal, that Asherah pole that was a vile symbol. You've got to tear it down. And in its place, you've got to build an altar to me. In other words, listen, listen, this is so important. You will never build an altar to God until you tear down the altars to your false gods. Jesus said it this way, no man can serve two masters. Gideon couldn't and, and you couldn't. And so Gideon did what God said. But, but here's the thing we see in verse 27. And I love this. Gideon did it in the middle of the night. <laughs> he, he was afraid. 
I mean, all of the people were worshiping Baal and Asherah, and he was going to go and tear down this altar. And he knew he needed to. He had encountered the living God, but he was afraid. And he, so he said, I'm going to do it. But he gathered some men, and he did it in the middle of the night. And the amazing thing is, God didn't condemn him. You know what that tells me? I want you to listen. It tells me that God takes us where we are. He takes us where we are. But he doesn't leave us where we are. This is, this is the second time we see Gideon doubting God's power. We see it some more as we move on in the story. God told Gideon that he was going to use him to deliver, to rescue the Israelites from the Midianites. And Gideon said, I'm not so sure about this. So Gideon put out, you know the story, he put out the fleece. We all know about putting out a fleece, don't we? This is where this came from. Gideon put out the fleece. Twice he did that. God, if you're really going to be with me, then prove it to me. Now, most often when we look at this story, we look at it in a negative light. Gideon didn't trust God, and, and that's true. He didn't. But again, I want you to notice something. Did God chastise Gideon? No. Did God condemn Gideon? No. Did God say, oh, you of little faith, trust me and stop this foolishness? Is that what God did? No. God answered and did what Gideon said. Again, listen to me. Look at me. God will take you where you are. Once you come to know him, once you bow down at his altar and realize that Jesus Christ is God and he is our only hope, he takes us where we are, but listen, he doesn't leave us where we are. Understand, it's not about who you are. It's about who God is. God can use you in an incredible way. Here's the second truth we see here, and it's an important truth. It's not the size of your army that matters. It's the size of your God. Listen to what it says in Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and, and I didn't tell you this, but, but after he tore down the altar, they nicknamed Gideon Jeroboam, which means let Baal fight against you. In other words, many people say what this actually means is you just whooped up on Baal. <laughs> and so they nicknamed him Jerob Baal. And all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of the Midians was north of them in the valley near the hill of March, Morik. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. You have too many men? You have too many men to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength is saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. 
If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneeled down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths and the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So initially, Gideon had an army of 32,000. Now, that sounds like a lot, but you need to understand the Midianites had amassed an army of 135,000. That's four to one odds. Gideon's sitting here thinking, we're outnumbered. We need some help. God says, you got too many men. So God says, anybody that's scared, anybody that's frightened, send them home. 22,000 men said, I'm scared. And they left and went home. Now, you need to understand in the Bible, God told them to do that. In Numbers 20, verse 8, this is what it says. Then the officers shall add when you're going to battle. Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. You see, fear is contagious, isn't it? Doubt is contagious when we begin to spread it around and talk about it and and we say, we can't do this. And so God said, first of all, get rid of all those who are afraid, all those who are fearful. And 22,000 went home. Now the odds are not four to one. The odds are 13 to one. Gideon said, oh my. How are we going to defeat 135,000 men with 10,000 men? We can't do this. And God says, you still got too many. So he said, I want to give them a test. I want you to take them down to the water and and those men that get on their knees by the stream and, and just put their face in the water and start drinking, I want you to put them in one group. And, and the men who kneel down and, and they take the water into their hands and lap it up, kind of like a dog would lick to his tongue, I want you to separate them. And, and the Bible says 300 men got down on their knees and lapped up the water like that. And God said, with those 300, I'm going to deliver the Midianites into your hand. Now, now some, and, and I've, even, I've even taught on this before, so hear me, have said that the reason God did this this way is because those who were on their knees, they were alert. They were more prepared. They were more ready for combat. But let me encourage you to go back to verse 2. In verse 2, God said, the Lord said to Midian, you have too many men. Here's the simple answer. God was just going through the army, weeding them out until there was a number that was so few, 450 to 1, that they could never say, look what we did. God was simply weeding them out so that he would receive the glory for what happened. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He said, human nature is such that if there is the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. Human nature is such that if there is the tiniest notion, the tiniest, the tiniest way that, that we can boast in what happens, we will boast. Our greatest danger 
as the people of God is not our lack of confidence. Our greatest danger is our self-confidence. The belief that we can do it on our own. And that is what keeps us from the power of God. It's not our weaknesses. It's our perceived strength. So here were the odds. 450 to 1. Impossible for man. But possible with God. And here's what you come to understand. You will never discover God is all you need until God is all you have. You see, that's the problem with some of us and, and some of the people that we're praying for. We're, we're praying that God would save them, that they would turn their hearts back to God. And, and the problem is, is, is that as long as everything's okay in their life, then they don't need God. Sometime we'll never discover God is all we need until we realize that God is all we have. Hudson Taylor said this. There are three stages in God's work. Impossible, difficult, done. <laughs> this is impossible. We begin to trust God, plow through. This is difficult. And we walk in obedience and all of a sudden, we discovered this is done. And that's what happened. With an army of 300 men who were armed with torches, pitchers, and trumpets, God defeated the Midianites. It's not the size of your army. It's the size of our God. But here's the third truth, and it's so important. How you start is not nearly as important as how you finish. I want you to listen to what it says in Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Great word. But then he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or, or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Then Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise his head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace, 40 years of it. Jeroboam's son of, of Joash went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Hold on to that. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age, was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah of the Abyssalites. Now, here's what Max Anders wrote on his commentary on Judges. He said, Gideon began well, but ended poorly. And his life offers a sad warning. 
When we take our eyes off the eternal, our priorities go astray. We, we focus on the temporal things that don't really matter, and then we appear a little different from the rest of the world. Gideon started as a coward. God made him a conqueror, but he ended as a compromiser. Because of this incredible victory, the people wanted to make Gideon king, but Gideon said no The Lord is your king. The Bible had made that clear. God made it clear that they were going to be different than all of the people of the world. They weren't going to have a king. He was going to rule over them. Gideon understood this with his head, but he didn't understand it with his heart. So Gideon said, I want you to give me one of the earrings that you get from each man. And from those earrings, he made an ephod. An ephod was what the high priest wore high priest that that led in the worship of Almighty God. On the front of the ephod was the unum and the thurnum, or uh, the the, um, urim and the thummim, two stones that that was used to to discern God's will. And, and, And Gideon put this ephod in his hometown with these two stones where you discern God's will. In other words, What Gideon was saying is you don't need to go to the tabernacle anymore to discern God's will. Come to me. Sounds like he's acting like a king. Gideon had 70 sons, the Bible says, because he had many wives. The kings, the pagan kings of the land, they all had many wives. We see Solomon doing that same thing as is the king of Israel. He's acting like a king. He has a concubine, a woman on the side, and from that concubine, he has an illegitimate son. He names him Abimelech. You know what the name Abimelech means? It means my dad is king. That's what the word means. And so here's Gideon. He says, I'm not going to be your king. The Lord is your king. But, but then he says, but come to me for guidance and direction. He creates this, this massive family with all of these wives. And he names his illegitimate son, my daddy is king. And the Bible says that the people came there and prostituted themselves as they worshipped that ephod. And it became a snare to the people of Israel. And it became a snare to Gideon, his family. In chapter 9, we read how Abimelech hired some men and had the rest of Gideon's sons murdered. All but one, Jotham. You see, when we turn from God and do it our way, Bad things are going to happen. Gideon began clothed in the spirit, but by the end, he was draped in the flesh. You see, our success, if not held in check, can cause us to forget the one who is responsible for our success. And that's what Gideon did. And I got to tell you, that's one of the things that that are always in the back of my mind. One of those fears that I want to remain there 
Because I never want to, to forget God in my latter years. Because I know a lot of men and ladies. But I know a lot of men who, who have served God faithfully as lay people and as pastors and as leaders. Who because of their success oftentimes end up turning from God and rejecting the one that gave them the success in the first place. And you never want to do that. So so where are you? You see, it's not who you are. It's who God is and what God can do through you. And so regardless of who you are or what you've done, you need to turn to the Lord. It's not the size of your army. Too often we think that if we have greater resources and we have greater money and we have greater manpower, we can do more. And God says, it's not about what you have. It's about who I am. I will do incredible things through you if you will trust me and give me the glory. And it's not how you start. It's how you finish. So we need to always be careful not to get lazy, not to get arrogant, not to get proud. We need to remain humble and realize any, any good thing that has happened through us has happened not because of us, but because of the God we serve. So what do we need to do? Well, there's some of you that may need to commit. You've never had an experience like Gideon did at that place where he built an altar and named it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. And if that's where you're at, you've never come to that point where you've totally surrendered and said, I'm going to follow you. Everything that I have is yours. I know I'll never be able to do it on my own. Then I want to encourage you today to give your heart and life to Jesus. There are some of you here today who who simply need to trust Him and depend on Him. And and you need to quit making excuses and and think that, that if you had this or you had this, that you could do more for God because it's not about what you have. It's not about who follows you. It's about whose you are, the God you serve. And then finally, if some of you are like me, you're up there and you're beginning that third period of your life or you're into that fourth quarter of your life and, and you're looking back at what you've done and you're kind of feeling good about it, stop it. Watch out. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. So keep pressing on. Keep plugging away. Keep your eyes on the one who gave you any success that you've ever experienced. So I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes with me. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, I want to walk us through three prayers. The first prayer is simple. I want to place my trust in Jesus. I want Jesus to give me that peace that I desperately need. If that's where you're at, I encourage you today to pray this prayer with all of your heart. Dear God, I come to you this morning placing my trust in Jesus. 
I know my best will never be good enough. I am trusting you with my life. Come into my heart and save me. Fill me with your spirit and take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to live a life surrendered to you so that you can work in me and you can work through me. Amen. With your head still bowed, with your eyes still closed. If you're here and you found yourself making excuses for why God has not done great things in your life, you need more resources, you need more manpower, you need more money, whatever, stop it. Begin to trust the God you serve. Let me encourage you to pray this prayer right now. Dear God, forgive me. I realize it's not about me. It's not about what I have. It's not about the army that I've amassed. It's about you. You can do anything. You're the God that that parted the Red Sea. You're the God that raises the dead. You're the God that snatches us out of sin and darkness. And today, I'm going to start trusting you to use me. And finally, if you're here, and you're in that final third or that final quarter of your life, and you're thinking about sitting back, don't. Let me encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, as I come into this this final stage of my life here on earth, I ask you to use me. Protect me from the enemy. Protect me from my own pride. Protect me from all of the excuses I will give to not do what I'm supposed to do. Keep my faith strong in you. Give me courage to stand. Give me wisdom. Give me power. Amen.